encourage you to sign up for beach baptism. If you've never made your public profession of faith in Christ in that way, this is a great opportunity for you to do that. Baptism is a symbol of Christ in his death on a cross, his burial in the tomb, and then his resurrection from the dead. And so when a person is standing in the water, they're saying, Christ died for me. I believe in him. I've trusted in him for the forgiveness of my sin. And then as they go under the water and come back up, they're saying he not only died, but he was buried and he rose again to live forever. And now I've been given a new life, a new start because of my faith in Christ. And so if you've never made your public profession of faith in Christ through baptism, let us be a part of that great celebration in your life. It's an act of obedience that Jesus says, if you're going to be his follower, then you need to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we would love to help you do that. So use the um, fcbc.life, click on the baptism card, and we'll contact you and give you all the details as we do the baptism next week at uh, Neptune. We're going to park over at Neptune Baptist Church and, uh, and then just walk right down to the beach. It's awesome. You will not want to miss that. Tonight, we're going to have a senior adult-led celebration of our nation. It's a patriotic presentation called Celebrate America. If you've been to this before, you know it's a great night. But it's even different this year because you're going to hear some testimonies from veterans here in our own church. And uh, so we hope you'll come back tonight at 6.30 for that. You can read more about it in your worship folder today. And then stay for a churchwide fellowship next door with some, uh, some refreshments. We would love to have you as a part of that. Well, today we're going to continue in our series called The Story of David. Uh, we originally intended this series to only be for the month of June, but I finished out the month of June, and poor David was still not the king of Israel yet, and so we're going to extend this to July and finish out uh, this series this month. But today I want to take you to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 9, and I want to talk to you about unexpected kindness. Now, the notes are available at fcbc.life on the sermon card, and I'll even put them up on the screen for you today. But I want to talk to you about unexpected kindness. You know, kindness has been defined as that quality of, of generosity or friendliness, that kindness can be shown through being considerate to other people. And I think all of us instinctively know that we ought to be kind people. But let's just be honest, it can be kind of hard to be kind in our kind of world. I mean, it can be hard to be kind in our kind of world. It's hard to always be friendly. It's hard to always be generous. It's hard to always be considerate to other people. It can be difficult. In fact, when I think of kindness, I sometimes think of niceness. And it doesn't get you very far sometimes in this life. When I think of kindness, I think of sweet grandmothers and kindergarten teachers, they're kind, and they teach us to be kind. But then we get out into the real world, and we find out kindness is a very difficult quality to exhibit. You know, kindness will only get you so far with that harsh spouse that you go home to every day. Kindness will not make you look good in the eyes of the school bully. Kindness won't win you the argument online as you fight about politics or religion. Kindness won't help you in rush hour traffic. Kindness can be hard to exhibit in our kind of world. And that's part of our problem, is that we sometimes know we ought to be kind, but we're not as thoughtful or as intentional 
or consistent as we ought to be. And then we have this idea that kindness just means timidity. Kindness means I'm a a doormat. Kindness means that I'm a pushover. And we don't want to be that. And sometimes for guys, kindness doesn't sound very manly. What do you mean to be kind? But kindness is a quality that we are expected to exhibit as followers of Christ. Now listen, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're not even sure what you believe about God or religion, even you know that deep down we're all supposed to be kind just because it's the right thing to do. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we know we're to be kind because it's what he expects of us. And we sometimes struggle. And we have to make the decision. Will I be the kind of person who is kind? Will I make the choice that I'm going to, I'm going to do my best with the help of God, to be the kind of person who is kind. Now, whenever we think about kindness, we often give ourselves a lot of credit. We say, well, of course I'm kind, most of the time. And, and we, we don't always realize there are some things in our life, some habits, some attitudes in our life that maybe aren't so kind. And so while we may feel kind, other people may not see us as kind. You remember Jeff Foxworthy, that great comedian? Um, he's, he's actually a follower of Christ. He's a member of North Point Community Church up in Atlanta. And I remember probably what put him on the, on the books was his uh, little bit about, uh, you might be a redneck. You, you remember that? Uh, for example, you know, if your family tree has no branches, you might be a redneck. Or if you cut the grass and find a car, you might be a redneck. Or if you have a home that is mobile and five cars that aren't, you might be a redneck. If you think loading the dishwasher is getting the wife drunk, you might be a redneck. You know, so I think sometimes there's another list. It's not near as funny as Jeff's, but if you are harsh with people, you might not be as kind as you think you are. If you are judgmental and legalistic, you might not be as kind as you think you are. If you are constantly arguing with people, you might not be as kind as you think you are. If you're holding bitterness and grudges and unforgiveness in your heart, you might not be as kind as you think you are. If you're very sarcastic toward your spouse, you might not be as kind as you think you are. And often, whenever I start thinking about those kind of qualities, I realize I'm not always as kind as I should be. So what I need in my life, and I think maybe you need it in your life, is I need an example of kindness. What does kindness look like in everyday life? And I need an empowerment to be kind. Because my natural reaction is not always to be kind. My natural reaction is to be selfish, to think of me first, and maybe not so thoughtful about how I treat other people. And so what we see today in our passage we're going to read is a, an example of kindness. And we discover the secret where we can find the empowerment to be a kind person. And this can transform your life. It can transform your marriage. It can transform your parenting. Or it can transform your relationship with your parents' kids. What we're going to learn today can transform how we interact with each other here and how we interact with people on social media. And it can help us as we interact with people in our community. And the eyes of our community are on us who claim to be followers of Christ. And they're looking to see what kind of people we are. And one of the things I hope they see is that we've decided to be the kind of people who are kind. And one of the great examples of kindness 
is found here in 2 Samuel 9. Now, to set the stage for what we're going to read today, David, for 20 years, has been on the run for his life. Because when he was a boy, he was anointed by God to be the future king of Israel. But God still had Saul on the throne of Israel. Saul became so insecure and so jealous over David that all throughout those next uh, 15, 20 years, he tried to kill David multiple times. Wanted to get this rival to the throne out of his life. And even though David had many opportunities to kill Saul, the king, David never did it. Remember we talked about that last week. David chose to return good for the evil that Saul did to him. But eventually, Saul goes out into battle against the Philistines. He has three of his sons with him, and the battle does not go in their favor. They lose the battle. As a matter of fact, Saul's three sons are killed by the Philistines. Saul is mortally wounded by the archers. And as he is bleeding out on the battlefield, he calls his armor bearer, and he says, please run me through with your spear. Don't let the Philistines disgrace my body. And the armor bearer was afraid and refused. So Saul fell on his own sword rather than letting the Philistines kill him. The news finally reaches David. And for the next few years, David is the king of Judah, but he's fighting a civil war now with one of the other sons of Saul who's trying to remain king. And eventually, that civil war is ended and David becomes the king of Israel about the year 1000 B.C. And so David is now the king of Israel. And David has a lot on his mind. He has the affairs of state to attend to. He has treaties to form. He has battles to win and wars to wage. He has an economy to be concerned about now. He has the lives of his people on his conscience now as he wants to protect them and provide for them. But even though he is so overwhelmed now with this new responsibility of being the king of Israel, there is something that is eating away at David. It just will not leave his thoughts. Day and night, there's just something eating at him. And this is what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. It says, One day David asked, Is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Even though David has a whole nation to lead, there is something that's bothering him. He realizes everything he has comes to him by God's grace, by God's mercy, by God's kindness. And now he wants to return that favor. He wants to show God's grace to someone else. God's given it to David. David now wants to give it to someone else. And he particularly knows he has a promise to keep. One of the sons of Saul killed in battle with the Philistines that day that Saul died was Jonathan. Jonathan was Saul's son. But remember, Jonathan was also David's best friend. And in 1 Samuel chapter 20, Jonathan and David made a pact. They made a covenant with each other that they would be loyal friends as long as they both lived. And that even after one of them died, the other would continue to show that same loyalty, that same friendship that same kindness to their family. And David remembers his promise, and he wants to keep his promise. And so he's thinking, is there anyone left of the household of Saul? 
Saul's family has been decimated by the judgment of God. Is there anyone left to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now that word kindness doesn't just simply mean niceness. In the Hebrew, the word is hesed or chesed. It's spelled H-E-S-E-D. And it's used 240 times in the Old Testament to refer to God's kindness. It's sometimes translated in your English Bible as loving kindness. It's sometimes translated mercy. It's sometimes translated favor. It's sometimes translated love. A New Testament equivalent to that Hebrew word is the word grace. It's unmerited love. And David says, is there anyone that I can show God's loving kindness, God's mercy, God's grace to someone in Saul's family? And that's an amazing question because in that day, kings typically did not seek to show favor to the former king's family. In fact, in that culture, in that day in which David lived, typically the kings of nations would wipe out the family of the former king, lest anyone from that family become a rival to the present king. But that's not David's heart. One of the evidences that David is a man after God's own heart is that he wants to show God's loving kindness that he has received to someone else, including someone in Saul's family, the very family that tried to destroy David. David now wants to bless. Look at verse 2. He summoned a man named Ziba, who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba, the king asked. Yes, sir, I am, Ziba replied. Verse 3, the king then asked him, Is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. Ziba replied, Yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He is crippled in both feet. So Ziba is brought in to David. David says, there's anyone left of Saul's family. Ziba's probably thinking when he first hears that question, David's about to kill everybody that might be a rival. But imagine his relief whenever David says, the reason I'm asking is I want to show God's kindness to someone from Saul's family. There's a new kind of king sitting on the throne of Israel now. And Ziba's heart is relieved and he says, well, actually, yes. One of Jonathan's sons. Remember Jonathan. One of the sons of Saul, killed by the Philistines along with his dad and two brothers, had a son. And that son is still alive. And Ziba says, but he's crippled in both of his feet. Now the backstory of how this little boy, now a grown man, became crippled was whenever the news reached the palace that Saul the king was dead and that Jonathan and his brothers were dead at the hands of the Philistines, panic ensued. The people in the palace panicked because they were afraid the Philistines may overrun them and kill them. Or David, the rightful king of the throne, may come in and wipe us all out. Now that our king is dead, now that our family member, our patriarch is dead, we've got to get every bit of belongings we can as quickly as possible, and we've got to run for our lives. So a little nurse takes Jonathan's five-year-old son, Mephibosheth, up into her arms, and she starts to run, to flee, to safety. But she trips. She falls. And as she falls, somehow, the little boy's feet are broken, injured, crippled. 
And for the rest of his life, he's crippled. He eventually finds himself in a little place called Lodabar. The name Lodabar means no pasture, uh, no provision. It's a desolate place. It's a place where they're just hiding out for their lives. And for years, little Mephibosheth has grown up in Lodabar. So Ziba says, yes, there is one son still left, the son of Jonathan. And then verse 4, David asked, where is he? In Lodabar, Ziba told him, at the home of Mekir, the son of Emiel. Verse 5. So David sent for him and brought him from Mekir's home. Verse 6. His name was Mephibosheth. By the way, I'm always pointing out great names. You won't find that in the 1001 baby names, that book. But there's a, you don't hear that one often. I'm just saying, I'm throwing that out there. So his name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. When he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. David said, greetings, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. I can only imagine what must have been going through Mephibosheth's mind as he hears the news in Lodabar, King David knows you're alive. King David wants you to appear before him in the palace. There's no telling what Mephibosheth had been told all of his life. You need to hide out here. If he ever discovers you, he'll assume you're a threat to his throne. Just like Saul became insecure, David might become insecure and kill you. And now Mephibosheth's worst fears are coming true. He's being called into the king's presence. And so he comes and he bows down before David as low as he can, showing great respect to the king of Israel. David greets him, and Mephibosheth's only reply is, I am your humble servant. I'm here in the position not as a rival to your throne. I'm just here as your servant. And he's got to be scared. His heart must be beating out of his chest. But imagine the relief whenever he hears the words of David. Look at verse 7. Don't be afraid, David said. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat with me here at the king's table. In one fell swoop, Mephibosheth's worst fears do not come true and his greatest dreams do. David says, don't be afraid. I brought you here with the intent not to harm you, but to show you God's kindness. I've shown, I want to show you the grace of God for your father's sake, for Jonathan's sake. That's why you're here. As a matter of fact, let's put some, let's put some parameters around this kindness. That's a nebulous word. Here's what I mean, David says, when I'm going to be kind to you. I'm giving you your grandfather's entire estate. Everything from the former king that he owned is now yours. You have it all. You're now one of the wealthiest people in all of Israel. And not only that, but from this day forward, you will eat with me at my table like one of my 
own sons. You are not a servant. You are not banished to Lodabar. You are now a resident in my palace at my table, enjoying the same privileges as all my sons. Now that's kindness. That is a beautiful picture of kindness. Verse 8, Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed. I mean, he cries out, Who is your servant that you would show such kindness to a dead dog like me? I'm a nobody. I don't deserve this. David doesn't even entertain Mephibosheth's self-deprecation. Verse 9, Then the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba and said, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. Verse 10, you and your servants are to farm the land for him to produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table. And then parenthetically, the writer adds, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Mephibosheth now has 36 employees. Now the servant of Saul is the servant of Mephibosheth. And David says he is going to enjoy all the fruit of your labor. You now work for him. Everything you do will now be for him. And he will sit at my table as royalty. And he will enjoy everything that we have. Verse 11, Ziba replied, Yes, my lord the king, I am your servant, and I will do all that you have commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table like one of the king's own sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. From then on, all the members of Ziba's household were Mephibosheth's servants. And then verse 13. It's interesting to me that the writer brings out something again. He's already mentioned it. Why does he do it again? Verse 13, and Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet. Why is he mentioning that again? He's already told us that. And Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly at the king's table. I don't know exactly why the writer put that in a second time. But I think it has something to do with the fact that Mephibosheth Still walked with a limp. We don't know if he needed people helping him as he walked. We don't know if he had crutches as he walked. But we know that it was unmistakable for the rest of Mephibosheth's life that he was crippled in both feet. That he could not walk like the other sons of King David. He walked with a limp. And I can only imagine the banquet table of King David, how awesome that room must have been. The finest choicest foods and wine and there it's time for everyone to gather and the king is seated at the head of the table and in comes the sons of David and their positions of privilege and then and then comes Mephibosheth and he haltingly makes his way to the table and everyone knows this is Mephibosheth who's crippled in both feet But when he sits down at the king's table, covered by the king's cloth and all of the king's provisions, you don't see those crippled feet. He's just another one of the sons. 
And this is an example of kindness. You say, Pastor, this is all great and fine, but what does this have to do with me? David did what he did because he recognized God's kindness to me shows me what kind of person I'm to be. David recognizes that everything he has, life and this position as king, all the provisions come from the hand of God. David knows he doesn't deserve any of these things. Yes, he's a man after God's own heart, but he was not perfect. He was a sinful person, just like me and you. We'll see that next week at one of his low moments in life. And he knew that everything he had as the king of Israel came from the hand of God himself. And because God had been so good to him, he needed to be good to someone else. And he needed to keep this promise to show lifelong loyalty. And here's where this story intersects with your story. It doesn't take much spiritual discernment, does it, child of God? To recognize that the first person you ought to identify with in this story is not really David. You know who the first person I identify with in this story? It's Mephibosheth. I identify with him from a rejected family living in God knows where, separated from God, undeserving of any good thing God would ever do for me. And yet out of God's grace, he took the initiative and called me and found me and forgave me and restored me into a right relationship with himself and made me a joint heir with Christ, his only begotten son, And even though I'm still flawed and I'm still imperfect, when I sit down at the table of God's grace, His grace covers all my flaws. His grace covers all my mistakes. His grace covers my past fall. And now I am a joint heir with Christ, a child of God. And everything I have or ever will have, everything I am or ever will be, is because of His loving kindness shown towards me. Through Christ. And because of that, God's kindness to me shows me the kind of person I'm to be. That I'm not only to just enjoy the the kindness of God, I'm to express the kindness of God to other people. Let me give you five keys to expressing kindness. First of all, uh, show kindness intentionally. Show kindness intentionally. Remember David said to Mephibosheth, don't be afraid, I intend to show God's kindness to you. He was intentional. And I think if we're going to be people who take the kindness of God and enjoy it, but also who express it to others, we're going to have to be more intentional than we are. Enough with random acts of kindness. Let's be people of intentional acts of kindness. How can I intentionally show kindness? To whom can I intentionally show kindness? Just as David asked, is there anyone? Maybe you need to ask that question. God, who do you want me to show your kindness to today? It could be your spouse. When's the last time you showed an extra measure of kindness? It could be your children. Kids, it could be your parents to whom you need to show kindness. It could be a stranger in need. It could be a fellow Christian who's going through a tough time. Be intentional about showing kindness. But not only be intentional, show kindness vicariously. That's a fancy word. I just had to throw it in there. Show, show kindness intentionally and vicariously. 
what vicarious means, it means in the name of another person or on behalf of another person. You know, we ought to show kindness just because it's the right thing to do. You shouldn't really need much more motivation or a reason or an excuse than that. It's never wrong to be kind. You ought to just show kindness because it's the right thing to do. But every once in a while, you ought to remind yourself to show kindness vicariously. Do it in the name of another person. Do it on behalf of someone else. For example, even if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're not a Christian... Maybe you need to look back and say, you know what? I'm going to be kind because that's how my mama raised me. That's how my parents raised me. That's how my grandmother taught me. And I want to live up to that standard and those values that they instilled in me. But for those of us who know Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, the person for whom we show kindness is the Lord Jesus Christ We do what we do because it's the right thing to do. We do what we do because that's the way we've been raised, perhaps. But ultimately, we do what we do because Christ has been good to us. And in his name, on his behalf, we want to show his kindness to other people. David showed kindness for Jonathan's sake. We show kindness for Jesus' sake. Show kindness intentionally, vicariously. Show kindness generously. David wasn't stingy with his kindness. David could have easily said, you know what we're going to do? I've heard about this kid, uh, this young man, grandson of Saul, son of Jonathan. I want to show kindness. I promised Jonathan I would. So let's just send him a monthly stipend over there in Lodabar. That'll keep him above the poverty line. Won't get rich, but he'll be okay. And I'm done. I've shown my kindness. I did as little as possible but I can still get credit for being kind. And sometimes I think that's how we live. We want to be kind. How little can I do and be considered kind? When we ought to just make up our mind, we're going to be generously kind. We're going to be lavishly kind. We're going to be exorbitant in our kindness. That we're not going to just see how little we can do. We want to grow in kindness. Maybe not to every single person, but over the time of our life, we want to become more and more generous in showing kindness. To other people intentionally vicariously generously and then show kindness personally david could have sent a servant to bless mephibosheth but no he he did this personally he took the initiative he did the research he invited mephibosheth into his presence he intentionally spoke the words of kindness and blessing on mephibosheth he personally gave of his own wealth and shared it with Mephibosheth, he got personally involved in showing kindness. Sometimes people will call our church office where they'll catch me between services and they'll say something like this. You know, so-and-so could use a visit. You know, so-and-so could use somebody to call them. You know, so-and-so could could use somebody to send them a card. And I want to look at them and say, you're so-and-so, why don't you do it? Because what they're doing is they're saying, I see a need over here where somebody ought to be kind to this person. Now, you, know, you church mem- staff members go do that. And church staff members ought to do that. And we do show kindness in many ways, seen and unseen by you. But why don't you take some 
personal responsibility to show kindness and say, I'm not going to pass this off to the church to show kindness. I'm going to personally get involved. I'm going to give of my time. I'm going to give of my money. I'm going to give of my resources. I'm going to personally show kindness in ways that church pastors can't do it. David took it personal. And he showed kindness unconditionally. David showed kindness to someone who could not pay him back. And we do not need to be known as men and women who are kind to people if. We're kind to people because. We're kind to people in a quid pro quo. You scratch my back, I scratch yours kind of way. We need to show kindness unconditionally because that's how Christ shows kindness to you. God doesn't love you if. God doesn't love you when. God doesn't love you because. God just loves you unconditionally. And that's the way you and I ought to love other people. You say, but what if they don't vote in the next election? Like, I think they ought to vote. Be kind. What if they have a lifestyle that I don't approve of? Be kind. What if they're of a different skin color or ethnicity? What if they didn't come to this country legally? Be kind. There's no fine print in this scripture. The same God who showed his unmerited love to you wants you to show unmerited love, undeserved love to others. What if they don't show kindness to me in return? Be kind. It's the right thing to do. But it's also a way to show God's been good to me. He's been kind to me personally and intentionally and generously and sacrificially and unconditionally. And I want to show that same kindness to other people. Can you imagine what would happen if we started making the decision that God's kindness to me shows me what kind of person I'm to be and I'm going to be the kind of person who's kind. I'm going to be focused on being kind to other people. Not my kindness, God's kindness. I'm going to give it away to other people. Can you imagine what would happen? I'm going to tell you, for some of you in this room, you, you, don't, you don't need to pay me for this counseling session this morning. But you want to transform your marriage? Start being kind to your spouse. Some of you just aren't kind. You're not considerate. You're not empathetic. You're not helpful. You're taking your spouse for granted. And most marriages don't fail because of one big moment of infidelity or one huge lapse in moral judgment. Most marriages fail because of one little dig after the other, one little slight after the other, one little barrier after the other, one brick that we put up between us and the other person until a few years or many years later, we don't even know each other anymore. And the way to tear down those barriers, kindness, kindness, kindness. Showing kindness. For some of you, it would change your parenting. For some of you kids, it would change the way you look at your parents. Why don't you show some kindness to your parents? Do your homework. Don't make them beg you and plead with you to do your homework. Clean up your room. Help around the house. Say yes, sir, no, sir. Yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Once in a while. Show a little kindness. Be a little considerate. It, it'll go a long ways. You'll think you've got some new parents. They'll think they got a new kid. When they see kindness on your behalf, 
Kindness will transform how this culture sees our church. Our community lives in a world of cruelty and selfishness and hostility and anger and prejudice and legalism. They're being scorched by the hostility of the world around them. And it's easy for them to get caught up in that. This church needs to be filled with people who live differently than the world. Have you ever gone to Six Flags over Georgia or Six Flags over Texas or gone to Disney or Epcot and it's a hot July uh, summer day and you're thinking, I paid good money to stand in line and melt here and you're exhausted and you're hot and you're dripping in sweat and you can't afford another $50 Coca-Cola. <laughs> and so you're, you're just... Walking like people from the walking dead, zombies, you know, just going through until finally you turn a corner and there is a cooling station. It's a misting station. And you walk up under that fan blowing misty water on you and you go, oh, this is awesome. Whoever invented this deserves a Nobel Prize. It's the best thing you've ever experienced in your life. Something as simple as a fan and a little mist of water. And our kindness may not seem like much individually, but when we penetrate this community as people who are going to show God's kindness to them because he's first shown it to us, this church will be like an oasis of kindness in a sea of hostility, in a desert of hostility. We need to be that kind of people. There are people in this community who will never believe like we believe, who will never agree with our doctrine, who will never agree with our standards, who won't believe the Bible like we do, who won't believe like in Jesus like we do. But even if that's the case, I hope those same people can say, but I cannot argue with how those people treat me. I don't believe like they do. I may not live like they do. But those people treat me with kindness. That will make a difference in our culture and in our world. And why do we do it? We do it for Christ's sake. Because God in Christ has shown his loving kindness to you. So that's your homework. Your homework is to go out there and find someone to whom you can show God's kindness to. And if you don't remember, okay, what were those things? Personally, systematically, no, that don't sound right. Forget my outline, friend. Forget it. It doesn't matter. Just do this. Go out there and say, God, let me think of ways you've been good to me. Let me just be good to somebody else. You'll have everything you need. Because God's kindness to me shows me what kind of person I'm to be. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in the stillness of this moment,